The Snake River Killer podcast is tracking multiple active and cold cases. This investigation is happening in real time. All individuals named and unnamed in this podcast are innocent until proven guilty by a court of law. Where is Christina White? Who is the suspect? Detective Jackie Nichols believes there may be a connection between Christina White's disappearance, the murders of Christina Nelson and Brandy Miller, as well as the disappearance of Stephen Pearsall. All suspected to have fallen victim at the hands of another. Law enforcement made a critical discovery shortly after the murders of Miller and Nelson. The man that was working in the theater that night lived at the home where Christina White disappeared from. He was very odd himself. He was more creepy, scary odd. She was on the porch and she waved goodbye. And that was the last time I saw her. Before we dive into this episode, I want to provide a quick update. Remember those school papers that local farmer Carl Flynn found on his property? And remember how Jackie wasn't certain as to how much time had passed between Christina's disappearance and his discovery of those papers, and that it could have been months or a year? Well, it just so happens that I was in the Valley recently and Christina White's sister, Carlin, introduced me to Carl. I have to say I was a bit nervous driving out to his farm and I only got more nervous when I saw the sign in his driveway that read, beware of badass guard dog. As it happened though, Carl and his dogs turned out to be very friendly and kind. Though he politely declined to be recorded for this podcast, we did sit around a table at the back of his expertly maintained home and started talking about the papers. What struck me immediately is that it wasn't ambiguous to Carl at all when he found the papers. He is certain that it wasn't more than a single week after Christina's disappearance that he found them. And again, to me, that makes sense. Any longer than that, and they would have been scattered across the highway, pasture, and probably blown into a Soton Creek. Instead, they were at the edge of his property where Rose kept her horse. Another thing I had been wondering is if the papers had been there for several days without Carl seeing them. But once I was on his property, which sits high on a bluff overlooking the pasture directly below, I realized that he would have noticed. I also sensed that he would have noticed because if you spend any time with him as I have, you will understand that there isn't anything that happens on his property that he doesn't notice. So given Carl's certainty on when he discovered the papers, I'm leaning more and more toward the possibility that the papers were placed there as a taunt to police. One more update. I had the chance to speak with Clint again at length recently, and he wanted to clear up something he had said before. When I asked him hypothetically if law enforcement found physical forensic evidence that connected Lance directly to these cases, would he believe it? Before, he sort of equivocated. Now, however, he is not equivocating. He's simply saying yes, he would absolutely believe it. He said, and I quote, I'm not unchangeable in my thinking if the evidence is there, end quote. Again, a reminder that Clint doesn't want to be on the podcast, though in my most recent conversation he seemed more open to the idea, now that he has gotten to know me a bit better. If that changes, I will make time to bring him on the show, so stay tuned. Anyway, I have to say that I found his clarification refreshing, to be honest, especially because there are some things about Clint that I find frustrating, like his rather deft ability to sort of explain away every connection Lance has to these cases, often taking, in my opinion, some leaps to get at particular conclusions. And here, the former academic in me wants to pause for a moment and talk about logic, because that's a concept I've been thinking a lot about lately, as that notion relates to these cases. In the last episode, I asked about the probability of one innocent girl falling suddenly into the orbit of one suspected serial killer and another person who was also likely a serial killer within the same window of time and geography. And there are numerous other such intersections in these cases where I'm constantly asking about probability and logic. To that end, the more I talk with Clint, the more I'm reminded of the principle called Occam's Razor. Now, if you don't know what that is, it's a theory named after the scholastic philosopher William of Occam, who is reputed to have said, quote, plurality should not be posited without necessity, end quote. 
In other words, of two or three or four competing theories, the simpler explanation is to be preferred. I'll give you an example, so bear with me, because I think it's important to keep this principle in mind as we move through these cases, especially because there are so many competing theories, conspiracy theories, and noise surrounding these cases, as you will learn in the next few episodes. So here's a thought experiment. Say, for instance, that you come home from work and you see that someone has left the milk out on the table and it has gone bad. In the sink, you find your daughter Sarah's favorite cereal bowl. So you call her into the kitchen and ask why she left the milk out. She says she didn't, that it was her brother Bobby who left it out. Now you point out that her bowl is in the sink and she says, well, Bobby must have used it. You say that can't be because Bobby is at baseball camp and has been all day. She says, well, he must have eaten cereal before camp. You say, no, I dropped him off at camp this morning and they serve breakfast at camp. She then says, well, he must have come home during a break. How would he get home, you ask? A friend at camp must have brought him home. How? Because none of them are old enough to drive, you say. Perhaps he borrowed a bike. Well, it's eight miles each way, you add. Maybe a friend's mom brought him home, and so on and so forth. In order for Bobby to have left the milk out, an increasingly complex set of conditions have to be met, and the more conditions that have to be met, the less likely that theory becomes. In other words, the answer is right in front of you. Sarah left the milk out. It's the simplest explanation. It is one of the reasons why conspiracy theories fall apart, and believe me, there are wild conspiracy theories surrounding these cases, which I will touch on shortly and only briefly to address their incredulousness. For Clint's part, he doesn't subscribe to any conspiracy theories per se, but his explanations for many of Lance's actions seems, to me at least, to be treading in the waters of too many conditions having to be met for his theories to hold up. So that side of Clint can be frustrating. That said, I'm sure he finds a lot of my questioning and doggedness frustrating as well. It's interesting. As individuals, I don't think Clint and I could be any more different on our worldviews. And while a lot of people who are actively following these cases, especially family members of the victims, seriously resent Clint, I've come to at least sort of respect his unique position in all of this. I know that's not a popular opinion for many, and if one of the victims was someone in my family, I would likely feel a lot differently. But as a third-party observer, I have to try to see both sides. Also on the topic of Clint, he said he did try again to look for the photographs that featured Christina White on his front yard on the day she went missing, but he still hasn't found them. He told me he would keep looking, so again, stay tuned on that as well. The last thing I will mention here is something else Clint told me which I find fascinating, if not telling, for a host of reasons. And what he had to say is read by associate producer Paul Dale. Did I tell you about the mud bogs the next day? Oh, I didn't mention that to you. My biological father came to get me, and we went to the fair, and we got some barbecue chicken at one of the fair booths, you know, freshly cooked on a grill. And I was all excited about eating the barbecue chicken. And there was a girl working, a teenager working, you know, behind the counter. And my dad said, has anybody heard anything about the missing girl yet? And the girl said, well, somebody said they found her dead down by the river, but that's just what someone said. And so rather than going to the mud bogs, my dad and I drove down the hill, went to the sheriff's department, talked to whatever deputy was around and asked if they had found her, you know, or what had happened. Because I remember sitting there looking at that chicken and I could not eat, you know, because it never crossed my mind that it could have been that she could have died. I, I just thought she was staying with a friend or, you know, hanging out with somebody and she was going to show back up, you know, but at that point the reality of it struck me. And then my dad drove me back up to the fair and we were standing on the hill kind of overlooking where they drive through the mud, you know, with the four-wheel drive vehicles. And we were there probably 20-30 minutes, but he had picked me up from the house, you know, a few hours before. What I didn't realize, I didn't leave a note because I never really thought I needed to leave a note. We lived in a small town where it was safe. But the next thing I see is Lance on his Harley riding up the hill to the fair. And he's got three or four sheriff's deputies vehicles behind him. They're following like in a convoy. And then he sees me with my dad at the mud bog and he flags them down and waves them off. But he had actually come looking for me because of what was going on. They hadn't found Christy yet, and then here I was missing. 
Okay, so this is a story I hadn't heard before, and it tells me a few things. For one thing, Clint reaffirms that his biological father came over to Asotin on Sunday, not Saturday, when the photographs featuring Christina White were allegedly to have been taken. So that's one thing. But the big takeaway for me here is this business about Lance going to the sheriff's office saying that Clint had gone missing. Something about that scene of Lance on his Harley leading a convoy of law enforcement in pursuit of Clint? Something about the showmanship of that seems, well, contrived. It reminds me too a little bit of when Betty said that he was one of the first people to help search for Christina White. It's like he's inserting himself into the case as a way of deflecting suspicion away from him to signal that he's beyond reproach. It just feels over the top to me, and if not over the top, then at the very least conspicuous. But the story also raises something else I will touch on briefly. One of the conspiracy theories surrounding these cases suggests that Lance, a motorcycle enthusiast who had a preoccupation with the macabre, was involved in a motorcycle gang and or satanic cult and or a pedophile ring. The story changes depending on who you ask. And what's more is that local law enforcement were also members of this group or groups and that they were all in on Christina's disappearance and even Kristen David's murder. All of this going on, by the way, in a town of scarcely 900 people. Remember, too, that this was the late 1970s and early 1980s when stories of satanic cults were sweeping the nation, largely spurred by the fabricated and now discredited book Michelle Remembers. But it's also worth noting that in 1995, a research team out of University of California, Davis, and the University of Illinois at Chicago analyzed some 12,000 of these alleged satanic sexual abuse cases and found no evidence that any such activities actually took place. You can find a link to that report on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under resources, articles, and links. While I initially kind of rolled my eyes at these theories, I kept telling myself to keep an open mind. And while I have found absolutely no evidence of these allegations other than hearsay, I do think I understand how some people have come to believe in these theories. For one thing, pop culture conditions us to wrongly believe that a murderer can be caught within the framework of a 120-minute movie or in 35 minutes of television. So if one of your family members has either gone missing or been killed, you, through no fault of your own, have this preconceived notion that the case really should be solved quickly. And when it drags on for weeks, months, years, and even decades, I can see how people will not only get frustrated and angry, but even jaded, disillusioned by the legal process. I can see, especially in a case like Christina White's where there were so many investigative missteps, how people might start believing that there's gotta be something else going on here, something nefarious, like local law enforcement had something to do with it. The story of the small-town crooked sheriff or small-town dirty cop is also something of a cliché and a trope in pop culture, but it's a cliché for a reason, because there really are crooked sheriffs and dirty cops out there, covering up crimes, cooking the books, and who are on the take. But my guess is that's rarer than our pop culture would have us believe, and usually these kind of cops get caught. All I'm saying is I'm sympathetic to how some people come to see these theories as explanations for the cases being so cold. And believe me, if I found any indication that these theories had merit, I would dive right in, because that would be huge. But I just haven't found anything to substantiate these claims. Besides, for such a theory to hold water, a massively complex set of conditions would have to be met in order for something like that to survive in total secrecy for over three decades. Because remember, Occam's razor. One more thing you should know. It had occurred to me a while back that there might be photographs of the Asotin County Fair taken on April 28, 1979, and if such photos existed, I suspected the Asotin County Extension Office would have them, so I reached out, and sure enough, they had an entire photo album and scrapbook dedicated to that year's fair. I have posted dozens of these photos on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under Resources Case Photos, so you can take a look. You can also check out our blog where I wrote a post about these photographs. Now, remember that Christina had long brown hair. She was wearing a tan and pink striped shirt, blue jeans, and red tennis shoes. Remember too that she also had a white 10-speed bicycle. If you have the time and inclination, see if you can find anything in those pictures matching her description or anything else that sticks out to you. These photos could contain valuable information as they were literally taken in the hours leading up to her disappearance. So let us know if you spot anything. Putting all that aside for the moment, I wanna circle back to the central question in Kristen David's case. Was Lance potentially involved or not? 
We know that Chris and David had connections to the Civic Theater sewing costumes and had worked around Lance. We also know that she worked at the Circle K and Scorpion Lounge in Moscow and that Lance was a patron of the latter and may have delivered to the former in his role as a driver for Frito-Lay, if he indeed drove for them. That data point turns out to be less concrete than I had originally thought. We do know that he drove for Music City and that his route took him up to Moscow and beyond with some regularity. The method of disposal also suggests that the killer is or was at the time a local. The newspapers in which Kristen's body parts were wrapped were pages from the Lewiston Morning Tribune dated from April of 1981. Also, a stranger or someone just passing through the valley wouldn't likely go to such extensive lengths to conceal the crime. The other thing I want to mention is something of a correction to the last episode. In going over my case notes, I realized that the lone eyewitness in the Kristen David murder, a man named James Archibald, gave a much more detailed account than I had alluded to earlier. According to Archibald, the brown van was stopped on the edge of the road. The blonde girl he saw was lying on the ground behind the van and appeared to be unconscious. Her bicycle was also upset on the roadside and, he said, the back wheel was still spinning. To Archibald, whom I've tried to contact but without any luck, it appeared as if the man driving the van was responsible for hitting the girl on the bike. He also said the man had a big old grin on his face, which I find disturbing. Archibald said he didn't stop because he figured that the man was there to help. Archibald then later phoned for an ambulance and then was essentially reprimanded by the first responders who found no trace of a van, a girl, or a bike. So those details, again, given under forensic hypnosis, if correct, paint a clearer and far more disturbing picture of that key moment along the highway. But his description of the man also brings to mind the description of Harry Hantman, whose mugshot can be found on our website under resources case photos. While the photo of Hantman isn't a very clear shot, it does somewhat match Archibald's description of the man he had seen on that fateful summer day in 1981. At least it matches more closely, I think, than Lance's likeness does. That composite sketch is also on our website under resources, clues. And it was this composite sketch as it compares to Lance that was something of a topic that Gloria and I had discussed, and I think we identified some key and important differences. You know, I had heard that Lance would leave the theater in costume or look different, color his hair, you know, his height would be a little hard to hide. Yeah. But the whole structure of that face mm-hmm. is not, it's not Lance. Yeah. Um, it just, it doesn't fit the hairline, the, the structure, the nose. He did have a full beard and mustache at some point, but I just don't yeah, know if it was did. then. He, he has a very, um, kind of a, a long, narrow face. And yeah. that face was, is, is much more sort of round. It, it's the features are much more doughy. Yeah. And Lance's face. Lance has, yeah, longer features. His friend that was in on the USS Vesuvius with him said his shipmates called him Ichabod Crane. So. Right. Gloria mentions the USS Vesuvius. That's the ship that Lance served on during the Vietnam War. And it's something that we will return to in a later episode. But the person that. I do believe the FBI is leaning towards getting more in. Well, according to their press conference, they are looking at this, the brown band, the person in the sketch. You need to look away from from Lance, not that we can rule him out. Mm -hmm. Let's look at this other individual as being responsible. Right. And if anybody out there has information on that individual, they really should come forward. You know, Detective Jackie Nichols is handling Kristen David's case. And on that note, I knew it was important to check in with Jackie about this case to get her take on the alleged culpability Lance may or may not bear in the situation. So I drove to Asotin to meet with her. It was the first time we had met in person, and we sat down in her office at the Sheriff's Department. So I'm on the Kristen David case okay. now. Okay, okay. And there seems to be two camps of thought on that case. One camp is that Lance had something to do with it. And the other camp says there's no way Lance had anything to do with it. On the side that Lance had nothing to do with it, what evidence or information that's public facing is there to suggest that he's not maybe involved? So, you know, I think a lot of this is speculation and I try to wade through that and get just 
to the nitty gritty, to the facts of what we do have, what we don't have. And a lot of that is circumstantial. But I think what makes it seem like he would not be responsible for that was that when we look at cases that he's closely linked to, Mm -hmm. it's different. Mm -hmm. The Kristen David case was so gruesome and had such specific things that happened to her remains um, versus the other cases that he's linked to. In law enforcement, we tend to see kind of trends with people. Mm -hmm. And so that, I think, is what has kind of always made people think he's not the one that did that. Okay. So the method of disposal is different. Yeah, and that makes sense to me. Um, On the other hand, we have two people unaccounted for. We don't know how or if they, how they were disposed of or if they were disposed of. Correct. So there's two variables. There there. is. There's kind of a flip side to all of these theories. Yeah, Um, yeah. We believe that he was interrupted in the case of Brandy Miller and Christina Nelson, that Stephen Pearsall was there, interrupted whatever was happening, so maybe there wasn't the time to do what had been done to Kristen David. And some of the people are just missing, like in the case of Christina White, so we don't know what happened to her remains. Right, right. So in the camp that maybe he did have something to do with it, what can we point to? So I have heard a couple of things that I haven't been able to verify, Mm -hmm. but through family, friends, and things that would know. Mm -hmm. I just don't have documentation of it. One is that Kristen David had worked at the Lewiston Civic Theater, had worked in the costume room. Um, The other was that she had attended Lewis Clark College, where Lance took classes. Oh, he took classes there. Yeah. Okay. So there could be some link there, but it's still pretty tenuous. Right. He uh, drove a delivery route. Is that your understanding. I have heard that he drove for Frito-Lay. I've never verified that. I do know that he drove for Music City and delivered uh, musical instruments to schools around the area. Okay. So it's not inconceivable that he would have made trips up from the valley. Correct. Toward Moscow or up Spokane that way. Correct. Okay. I was talking with Kristen's sister, Anne Mackey, and she said that Kristen worked at the Circle K in Moscow. Lance had worked at the Circle K in southern Idaho. And it's interesting that you haven't been able to verify the Frito-Lay. If that was verified, then it's conceivable that he might have made deliveries to that Circle K Mm -hmm. in Moscow. Again, there's just a lot of unknowns. Right. There was a sketch released of a person of interest that a witness had seen um, near Genesee. That sketch doesn't really look much like Lance. Correct. At least as far as I can tell. Right. And the physical description that the witness provided. Right. um, The person of interest in the Christina White and the theater cases was a much larger person than the person described in the Kristen David case. So my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong, my understanding is that this witness underwent forensic hypnosis. Is that right? Correct. And that's a practice that's not often used anymore? Correct. Can you speak to that at all? Well, I think, I don't know what the science is, and I Mm. don't know, you know, all the specifics of why we've moved away from it, but I speculate that it's because it's not an exact science, it's not Mm. a proven science. Um, I think it was something that they felt could work at the time, but I believe now the thought is that, that someone under hypnosis can be subject to suggestion. And so it's not what we can use as evidence. In cases like this, we have to have, you know, really Loctite evidence to go to court. And at the time, they were working with what they had and the technology they had then. Now we have, you know, video cameras and we have cell phones and we have, you know, those types of things that can provide us with much better details of the circumstances of a crime. More concrete. Yeah. I mean, I've read about wrongful convictions that have been brought about because of forensic hypnosis, but, you know, at the same time, in in such a case, you know, that's all they had to work with, so. Right. And it's also true that there were a number of folks, at least in my research, in and around the area, like Harry Hantman, for example. Yes. That could have the means and the and the method mm-hmm. and might have yeah. fit the profile. Yeah, I think he's a, a, a strong suspect in the Kristen David case. 
Um, there's a couple others that traveled through our area. Mm -hmm. Lucas and O'Toole were a couple of serial killers that traveled through our area, and they kind of pointed the finger at each other for the Kristen David case. Interesting. And then there was uh, Robert Yates up in yep. Spokane. They're just, it was kind of the golden era for serial killers. It's so strange, yeah. It just, it was, it was kind of this, you know, the planets lining up perfect combination of young people having so much more freedom. Right. And young women going out and doing things, hitchhiking and right. going on their own. But, you know, with no technology like we have now, no cell phones, no surveillance right. cameras. Yep. People didn't check in. There wasn't all the electronic stuff to... Databases yeah, you know, that yeah. you could share with other and, agencies. Yeah, agencies didn't communicate as well. Right. So. And here, I mean, because you have really three states, that must right. have made it even more complex. Oh, I can't even imagine. Because we still work on communication. Like, just right. between agencies, we it, it's something we have to work on all the time. Right. And we have so much better access to uh, ability to communicate, email, cell right. phone. But it still takes an effort, But right? it does, yeah. Yeah, you have to be and intentional And we still find it. information falls through the cracks. So, right. So back then, I mean... Yeah, it was really difficult. They tried. I mean, they had teletypes and right. phones, of course. And, yeah. But still, the information didn't get shared. You know, now right. we have, like, a central place in Washington that sends out bulletins every mm -hmm. day through email to let people know. And sure nationwide ones and all right. of that but still things fall through the cracks yeah i i think that given the era given what was going on in the culture like with women's liberation and going out and the dark side of that right is that right. they kind of were vulnerable um it's interesting if you think of h.h H. holmes in chicago the serial killer back in the world's fair it was a similar kind of thing women were kind of going out on their own the turn of the 19th century, right at the end of it, um, they kind of felt a little more free to be without escorted by a man. Mm -hmm. And then given the kind of region here with, you know, two rivers and three states, and it's kind of, I hate to use the word perfect, but it's kind it's of... It's like the perfect storm. It is, yeah, yeah. Of all these things coming together. Right, right. So, And we have a lot of rural area, uh, wilderness area. Right. It's remote, and yeah, so which makes it, it must be daunting to even. Yeah, I used to spend a lot of time searching, like mm. where can I find Stephen Pearsall? Where can right. I find Christina White? And following up on, right. you know, a lot of these leads and things, even if they were, you know, a psychic gave me this information or whatever, right. I'd go out and look. And it didn't take, you know, long to figure out if I don't have a specific location to start searching, it is just literally a needle in a million haystacks. I'm thinking about like hiring a drone pilot um, mm -hmm. to like go over some ravines and stuff. Mm -hmm. um, but again, like, yeah, I don't know where to begin. Right. You know, exactly. Do I just throw a dart at a map? And then the, the other issue or difficulty with that is these ravines, although like from Google Earth, they look, you know, like you can see down into them. Yeah. They're filled with underbrush and shrubs right. that are, you know, six, seven feet tall. Right. You can't see so below that. So you could see the top of the shrubs, but, but not down below. The ability to see something, even a vehicle, you can't see them right down in those ravines. I know. I've used Google Earth to try to look at the reservoir, Lower Granite Reservoir, mm -hmm. that, that Lance was opposed to on the drawdown, and you can't really make out anything from those those images. So um, yeah. Yeah, again, needle in a haystack, million haystacks. Yeah. Do you know if the FBI has any, I don't know if you can share this, are they looking at any particular suspects outside of Lance? They are. They've, they've kind of got a, a few different ones that they're looking at and okay. pursuing kind of deep dives on. Okay. Um, nothing that, you know, is earth shattering at this point mm. or that they could talk about at this point. Right. But they, they're definitely working on it and are looking at a couple of different suspects that Kind of their names came up over a period of time and ones that have come up, you know, more recently. Okay. And it's just a matter of now trying to put everything together yeah. to make it yeah. unassailable. Right. Something else I'll add here. In my conversation with Jackie, I had mentioned the Lower Granite Dam Reservoir, which sits on the Snake River some 23 miles northwest of Lewiston. Back in 1994, in an effort to mitigate the loss of salmon, 
the Northwest Power Planning Council proposed a drawdown of the reservoir that would effectively flush young salmon out to sea. That proposal, which would have been carried out by the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers, called for lowering the reservoir's depth by 28 feet. One of the most conspicuous opponents of this drawdown was none other than Lance himself. That proposed drawdown, his response, and his potential motives for being opposed to that drawdown, that's something that will be discussed in an upcoming episode, so remember that, because it's something that no one else looking into these cases has stumbled onto or discussed until now. So a couple of takeaways from my conversation with Jackie. First, she acknowledged that without knowing the fates of Stephen Pearsall and Christina White and how their bodies were disposed of, it's difficult to entirely rule Lance out of the picture. But second, and perhaps more important, is the fact that the FBI is actively looking at other potential suspects. So it does feel like the crosshairs in this case have shifted away from Lance, at least for the time being. Like Gloria, Jackie noted how Harry Hantman could very well be the one responsible for Kristen's murder. That said, the only reservation I have about Hantman's potential culpability relates to his location and logistics. In order for Hantman to have pulled this off, he would have had to abduct Kristen in Idaho, outside of Genesee, then drive across state lines into Washington and again into Oregon to his off-site cabin. There, he would have committed the murder and prepared her body for disposal, only to pack up the remains and drive them all the way back to Clarkston to dispose of them at Red Wolf Crossing. That seems to me to be taking on an extraordinary and unnecessary risk when he could have easily disposed of her remains on his six-acre property or somewhere near his property. But that alone doesn't rule him out, so a lot of questions remain on that point. But for me, what is perhaps more terrifying than alleged satanic cults or motorcycle gangs is the fact that during the late 1970s and early 1980s, there were dozens of serial killers and rapists who were active in the Pacific Northwest, and many of them had either passed through or had ties to the LC Valley. When Gloria sent me her 15-page document outlining these men and their crimes, I couldn't believe it. Reading it was soul-draining and dark, but it was necessary, because if Lance or Harry Hentman weren't responsible for Kristen David's murder, then one of the men named in that document could very well be the one responsible. The sheer number of names on the list is frightening, but also I wanted to shine a light on a couple of them as they track relatively closely to the Kristen David case and the M.O. behind it. There are other names on the list that I am looking into more closely, and if I am able to bring anything forward on those names, I will do so in a later episode. But here they are, the names of what I call 32 monsters. Harry Anthony Hantman, a.k.a. Thomas Andrew Dorian. Roger Stephen Thompson, a.k.a. Roger the Dodger. John Edgar Hillstrom. Alan Kim Meggard Jr. John William, a.k.a. John W. Hoffman, a.k.a. John w. Wesley Guinness. Hamrick Manuel Jr. Trinidad Cortez. Michael Ray Hightower Bobby III. Jack Fowler. Rex Allen Krebs. Michael D. Rosenberg, a.k.a. Tommy Michael Lynn Sells. Ronald David Michael Bingham. Edward Warren. Allen, Leslie James Forrest. Homer Ellis, Edward Rosieri Taylor, a.k.a. Kenneth Royal Bianchi, a.k.a. The Hillside Strangler, Burns, Martin Lee Sanders, William Scott Billy Smith, Ray Ballard, a.k.a. Joe Condro, Daniel Yates, John Bill Fletcher, Keegan Hunter Jesperson, a.k.a. The Happy Joel Face Patrick Kid, Courtney, Vernon Cho, Monty Emile, and Alan Richard Smith. It's also worth pointing out that Jackie had mentioned Henry Lee Lucas and Otis Toole. They were two lovers and serial murders who had evidently pointed the finger at one another for potential implication in Kristen David's murder. Now that you've processed that list, a few of the names on that list warrant further examination as they may relate to the Kristen David case. For instance, from this list we get this additional information from Gloria's document. Michael D. Rosenberg, a.k.a. Michael D. Fox, was a resident of Clarkston, Washington. In June 2009, Isla Smith reported that she believed her ex-boyfriend, Mike Rosenberg, might be a suspect in the Kristen David case. Isla stated that Mike came to this area in 1978 or 1979 from Oregon. She said he drove a brown van with Oregon plates. 
Isla said that Mike worked as a denturist and he had done facial reconstructions for injured soldiers from the Vietnam War. Isla also said that Mike was a hippie and liked drinking and drugs. She also said that he had a cabin in the Waha, Idaho area about 30 minutes south of Lewiston. Isla said in 1983, she learned Mike had molested her nine-year-old daughter. And though she did not report it, she quote, ran him out of town. She also said that Mike later returned to the area, but that she had no contact with him. So in that data point, we have identified a brown van with Oregon plates as somebody being in the area. Then we have Stanley Burnson with ties to Spokane and Richland, Washington and Umatilla, Oregon. Stanley Burnson is suspected of killing up to 30 Northwest women. Burnson stabbed a 15-year-old girl to death and buried her in a shallow grave in Richland, Washington. Authorities in Oregon also charged him for the 1978 murder of a Umatilla teenager whose body was found in 1985. And then finally, we get to Ronald David Bingham and his wife, Luella Bingham. They were LC Valley residents who had both been charged with the rape of a 13-year-old girl in 1978. The charges were later dropped when the victim was no longer available to testify. In 1984, the couple was again charged with the rape of a 16-year-old girl. Luella cooperated with police, and Ronald was sentenced to 27 months in prison. It was widely believed that they routinely gave drugs to teenagers in exchange for sex. But on May 17, 1995, Ken Arasmith, the father of a daughter he believed was raped by the Binghams, went to their house and shot both of them to death. Many in the Valley rushed to Arasmith's defense with a strong show of support for being a vigilante. I pause on this case for a few reasons. Some have pointed to the Binghams as potential culprits in the Christina White case. And while Christina certainly fits the profile of the victims who fell prey to the Binghams, there isn't anything else linking the two cases, nor is there any indication that Christina White hung around with other pre-teens and teens who took drugs. But I pause here too because given the nature of this couple's heinous and predatory crimes, it's easy to see how many people in the valley have gravitated toward the conspiracy theories about the alleged prevalence of satanic sex cults and pedophilia rings. In my most recent conversation with Clint, he corroborated a detail I had heard about earlier and that I had mentioned in episode 3. Someone staying at the RV park at the edge of the Snake River had seen a man throwing bags off Red Wolf Crossing Bridge and that right after, the witness, wanting to call police, went to the nearest payphone, which happened to be the Circle K in Clarkston, about a mile and a half down the street from the RV park. Also, I have recently come across a later report that said police had found what they considered to be blood on the railing of Red Wolf Crossing Bridge. Now, on that detail and on the witness, I will see if I can track down more information and I will keep you posted. And on the note of Red Wolf Crossing and the Snake River and the RV Park, I knew it was important for me to put myself in that space to kind of gain that vantage just to see what I could see. So I drove down to the valley and spent some time there walking along the shore of the Snake River. I don't think you get a full appreciation of how big the Snake River is until you stand at its shore like I'm doing right now. It's, it's a major river. I mean, you know, for the West, this is a huge, huge river. And it's sort of daunting. And I have to say again, the crazy part to me is that I'm standing under Highway 128. And somebody had apparently seen somebody throw something off this bridge right around that time. And there is a marina just 100 yards from where I'm standing. So it's completely possible that somebody might have seen something. <sighs> Just gut-wrenching. That, again, that juxtaposition between how just beautiful it is, but then you know what happened here. And it just obliterates that notion altogether. <sighs> how, do you, how do you square that? How do you even reconcile those two? just it's beyond the pale I gotta say I don't know if you could tell but when I was walking along the riverbank I was overwhelmed not just by the enormity of the river itself but by the enormity of the Kristen David case and all the rest of the cases for that matter 
I couldn't help but feel small and inconsequential by comparison, by the river's width, its scale and depth, but also by the secrets that it no doubt holds. But I was also thinking of the Christina White case and how divers had advised the family that searching this river would be next to impossible, especially then. Christina had gone missing in April. That's during spring runoff, when mountain snowpack melts and rivers surge. Another thought that occurred to me after walking along that riverbank. If Lance allegedly killed Christina and, say, disposed of her in the same fashion that Kristen David was, then I would think her body parts, like those of Kristen David, would also have surfaced, especially during spring runoff. But again, that's just more speculation in a case where there's just so little to go on. And because there's so little to go on, I knew it was important to keep pushing forward, to keep reaching out to potential contacts, and along those lines, I was finally able to catch up with Cheryl Lutz, Kristen David's best friend from childhood. In talking with her, however, I learned that she pronounces her last name Lutz, so I want to make that correction here. You will recall that it was Cheryl who had corresponded with Kristen over the years through letters, and so I was keen on tracking her down to see if any of those letters were still around. In speaking with her, though, I learned that, unfortunately, she no longer has the letters. But she did have fond memories of Kristen, and she also provided a photograph of Kristen from their childhood years, and you can find that photo on our website, snakeriverkiller.com, under Resources Case Photos. My name is Cheryl Christensen Lutz, and Kristen and I went to grade school together, and we were best friends, and kept in contact even after they moved. What was she like uh, growing up? Oh, she was fun. She was quirky. What is really funny is that when I was looking back on this um, in my scrapbook and her graduation announcement, of course, back then they had two envelopes. And the second envelope she put on there, Cheryl Francis Christensen, <laughs> which is my full name, which is kind of the way that she always was. In talking with her sister, Anne, I got the impression that Kristen was very sort of independent, kind of marched to her own beat. Oh, yes, most definitely. She did. And she was, she let you in so far, you know, but she was fun. And she just was a really good friend of mine. When was the last time that you saw her? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure of the year, but I know we were um, still in high school and she came back and stayed with me. I think she went probably to visit her grandma and Pierre, and she came back and stayed with me. And do you recall anything specific from that visit? Um, we went to a party because she knew people, you know, because she grew up with them. So she got to see a lot of people that she grew up with, like grade school stuff that she hadn't seen for a long, long time. But she was, you know, she was just the same. She was, like Ann said, she does go to her own beat or whatever, but it was fun. And the way that I found out about her passing was, um, I'm a barber and I was in Mitchell, South Dakota, and I went to lunch and I came back and my boss said, the FBI wants to talk to you. And I said, uh, I thought he was joking, but they came back and he wasn't. And they they found out about me through the letters that she still had that I wrote. You know, we were writing back and forth. And then that's when they told me that what had happened. That must have been quite a shock. Oh, yeah, it was. Yep. Tears. Oh, it was it was awful. Yeah. Do you remember anything about what the FBI asked you about? Um, did she have any enemies? You know, was she on drugs? The last time that the letter that you got from her, how was her state of mind? Which was fine. I mean, she was excited about college and, you know, all that kind of stuff. She, there was nothing that, you know, sounded like it was out of the ordinary. Yeah, she wasn't worried or... No, uh-uh. Like no, she was excited about going to college and... I really don't remember, but it wasn't like all the time. But that's one thing, even after she left all those years, it was just really cool that we stayed in touch. Right. And I really wish she was alive today so we could still do that. I just truly hope that with 
opening this back up that somebody can find something to help all of us put her to rest, including her mom and her family, because it's awful. And especially after so long, still having no answers. No closure. Yeah. And have you been following the cases at all? And Ann told me about, you know, the People magazine thing, so I went and bought that. Yeah. So I'm... I'm interested now. Well, I always have been, but now that Ann and I and her brothers and stuff have reconnected over Facebook and such, it just all comes back. And it's like, okay, let's get this figured out. Evidently, the FBI thought the letters were current enough and relevant enough to pay Cheryl a visit in South Dakota. Whether or not the agents traveled from the Pacific Northwest to South Dakota, or whether they asked South Dakota agents to pay her a visit on their behalf, I don't know, and neither does Cheryl. I mention this because they asked Cheryl if Kristen was on drugs. I guess I find that a little strange. Of course, it's probably just a routine question that they have to ask just to get it out of the way and check that box. But I would think that any agents who had been working the case closely would have turned her apartment inside and out looking for anything suspicious or indicative of something like drug usage. And from everything we have learned about Kristen, from her sister, childhood best friend, and college professor, Kristen David was as likely to have been on drugs as Christina White was to have been a runaway. But the query still stood out to me too because there's just something in the subtext that suggests that Kristen may have been partly to blame for her own disappearance and that she wasn't just a victim at the hands of a violent criminal. That said, again, it's probably just a routine question. So when we take a step back and look at the wide view of the Kristen David case, we have a number of folks, Gloria, Ann, Jackie, and the FBI, who are turning their sights away from Lance and who are now looking at someone else. Whether it's Harry Hantman, one of the 32 monsters, or someone else entirely, remains unclear as of this recording. But when Jackie mentioned that the FBI had been doing deep dives on some names that have come up over the years, she also mentioned that some have come up more recently. Now, my ears perked up on her word recently, because that tracks with some of the information I have learned from some of my confidential sources. In other words, this case is still very active. One final thing, and honestly, I don't even know what to make of this, but remember the Lost Husky classified ad in the Christina White case? And remember how I said I would be spending time digging back through those ads? Well, I have been digging back through them just to see what I could shake loose. And while I didn't have super high expectations of finding much, I did come across two items that really got my attention, both for their wording and their timing. And if I'm coming to understand anything about Lance and his writing, the two most important factors to consider, at least from my analysis, are the wording and the timing. For instance, on March 7, 1981, almost two years exactly after Christina White went missing, and three days after what would have been her 14th birthday, Lance placed another ad in the Lewiston Morning Tribune. This ad, which begins with two words in all caps, reads, quote, Afghan bitch, three years old, $75 slash offer for spaying fee. 243-4284 or 243-4763, end quote. Okay, yes, bitch is the technical term for a female dog, and yes, we know that he had Afghan hounds, and true, dog breeders will often use that term variously. But to me, you have to look not only at the timing and the wording, but you have to look at the messenger. Lance is nothing if not intentional with his wording, at least from what I can tell. All of us make choices when we write, even if we aren't 100% cognizant of those choices. But for someone who is engaged in the print media, who spends a lot of time writing into local papers, and who fancies himself as something of an intellectual, wording matters. And somewhat along these lines, although anecdotally, I find it interesting that Kristen David's body parts were wrapped not in grocery sacks, burlap, plastic sheeting, cloth, or any other kind of material. They were wrapped in none other than the pages from the Lewiston Morning Tribune, dated from April of that year. Now recall that Christina White went missing in April two years earlier. And if you were wondering if Lance had written into the paper in April of 1981, as I had wondered, well, I can tell you I haven't found anything. Not yet, anyway. Again, I think we can put these details safely in the column of coincidence, but it's one of those things I think about. If nothing else, this ad about the Afghan bitch affords a glimpse into his mind, into how he thinks. And while I haven't been able to tease out any code or riddle from this ad yet, it is still something that caught my attention. 
Of note too is that this is the second classified ad about dogs that have fallen on or near Christina White's birthday. You can see a copy of the ad on our website, snakeriverkiller.com under resources clues. For me, the more I look at it though, the more disturbing it becomes. Also of note is the alternate phone number listed, which is different from the alternate number listed in the Lost Husky ad. And that is something else I'm looking into, his phone numbers because Lance had several phone numbers in the late 1970s and early 1980s, which strikes me as somewhat unusual. But the second ad that I found could directly bear on the Kristen David case. On July 4th, 1982, one year to the day of when Kristen David's remains were found in the Snake River, another one of Lance's ads ran in the classifieds that read, quote, all caps, found German Shepherd on Snake River Avenue 243-4284, end quote. So when Christina went missing, we got a lost dog ad in the classifieds on the anniversary date of her birthday. And on the one year anniversary of when Kristen David's body parts were found, we get a found dog in the classified section. So I ask you again, is that a coincidence? The Snake River Killer is a production of Resuscitate Media LLC. I'm the host, Brandon Schrand. Original music is written and scored by the Young Knight Drifters. Special thanks to Blake Walker, our engineer, associate producers Gloria Boberts and Paul Dale, research assistant Tina Landry-Ott, and a special shout-out to Jennifer Anderson and Vernon Lott for letting us re-air portions of their documentary, Confluence. Be sure to visit us online at snakeriverkiller.com where you can find photos, maps, timelines, and other resources connected to these cases. Next time on The Snake River Killer. Arsenic and old lace. And he played uh, Jonathan Brewster, right? Is that the name? And what do we know about that character in that play? Jonathan was a serial killer, but the director essentially said something along the lines of, this is what people think already, and you playing this role isn't going to change that. Now that I look at it and think about it, he kind of had kind of crazy eyes. But he was such a chameleon when it came to his persona. The way Lance inserts himself into the timeline, I think he's given cryptic clues. He knew that the fog got over at midnight, but yet he says 11. Does that mean he caught up with the girls at 11? Wait, did you, sorry, did you say you lived with him? Yeah, he had confessed to me that he was having an affair with her and that he was the one to find the body.